Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Let's talk about this idea of God's prompting. Part of his sovereignty in history and his sovereignty in our personal lives down to individual people is this idea of prompting. Meaning, very simply, God mysteriously moves hearts. Now you read some of that in those opening verses, didn't you? From Ezra and from Proverbs, from Daniel. God putting it into their hearts. In some cases, to harden hearts against Israel. And in some cases, to give Daniel favor in the sight of the king and the people, right? And, and God does both. Good, bad, in the middle. God is still the one at work moving people's hearts mysteriously by his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes for his people and for his glory. That being said, these people are making free choices. By free, we mean fallen in our fallen world, affected by sin, tainted by sin. So not like just pure libertarian free will, but at the same time, they're not being coerced or forced by God to commit sin or to harden their hearts against him. These are actions that they're doing on their own that God can then ratify or can change according to his own grace and his own mercy. But these people are making free choices, whether it's Cyrus or Pharaoh uh, or King Darius or whoever we're talking about in the Old Testament or any time. This is God's moving of their hearts, even as they're making free, conscious, voluntary decisions. In the end, doing exactly as God plans. Now, tonight there's going to be several of these points that come up, and one point will seem to say one thing, and another point will seem to say something else, and it will seem contradictory to you. I want to point you to, I think it was in the book, the idea of mystery versus, what was the other word? Mystery in chapter 4, mystery versus uh, contradiction or something like that. There, there's, there's a difference between something being a mystery, something being a contradiction. There's a difference in Scripture between something being um, tense in our minds between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or free will, if you just want to throw that word out there. Um, there's a tension there in our minds. The Bible presents that tension and most of the time does not offer any explanation. So, for instance, when you're reading Exodus, uh, on one verse it said, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In another instance it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Moses does not take the time under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to sit and say, now how does this work? I know a couple chapters ago I said Pharaoh hardened his heart, and now I'm saying God hardened his heart, so I wanted to explain how that works. They don't explain. Oftentimes they don't explain. We see both working, though, don't we? Pharaoh doing his thing, God working his thing. Joseph's brothers doing their thing, God doing his thing. Herod and Pontius Pilate doing their thing, God doing his thing. All at the same time, wrapped up in these actions with one another. Let's look at some scriptures together to uh, uh, go through this a little more. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12. When someone gets there, would you volunteer to read verses 35 through 36? 
Exodus 12, 35 through 36. Anybody, volunteer. Margaret, thank you, loudly. Okay, so in this instance, it's favor that God grants the Israelites in the eyes of the Egyptians. Keep in mind, these Egyptians were their former slaveholders, pagans, non-believers, hard-hearted, idol worshipers, and yet God in his sovereignty is able to mysteriously work in their hearts so that they, they look on the people of Israel with so much favor, even as they're about to leave, so that they give them their valuables. And it says it's as if they plundered. It's as if the people of Israel had gone into Egypt, conquered them, and were taking spoils after the battle. That's what it says. It's as if they plundered the Egyptians. God gave them that much favor in the sight, working in the hearts and the minds of the Egyptians to give his people uh, what they needed. Ezra 1.1, you already saw this in your reading. Uh, God put it into the heart of Cyrus. Okay, Cyrus, again, foreign, pagan, idolatrous, wicked king who came against Israel, came against Judah. Nevertheless, what does it say there from the very beginning of the book? Uh, lest you have any doubt as you read through the Old Testament history, God is the one who put it into the heart of Cyrus to do this. Uh, turn to Isaiah 45. Let us turn there together. Isaiah 45. Would someone volunteer to read verses 4 through 5? Isaiah 45, 4 through 5. Deanne, thank you. All right, so this, if you look at your heading, is about Cyrus being used as God's instrument of judgment against his own people. And so God is saying to this foreign pagan king, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to give you the desire to overtake my people. I'm going to give you the ability to overtake my people and to defeat them. I'm going to grant you honor, and I'm going to raise you up and exalt you, even though two times he said it, you do not know me, and you do not acknowledge me. Pagan, foreign, idolatrous king Cyrus. All right, one more. Oh, you don't have to turn there. You already did this too. Proverbs 21.1, uh, the, the king's heart is like a river, a uh, channel of water in the, in the Lord's hands. He moves it as he wills. Uh, I always think of those little um, things on Blippi. You might know what Blippi is. My children watch Blippi. And he, <laughs> he goes to these little children's museums, and in one of them there's this little water activity where they're able to take a, a flow of water and using blocks and these various materials, they're able to direct it as they will and try to get it to the buckets. It's a little science museum thing. Um, that's what immediately came to my mind when I think about the Lord directing these channels of water uh, as if he were directing the king's heart in that same way. The king's making his plans, the king's doing his thing, making his decrees, marching against enemies, overtaking enemies. All the while, it is the Lord, mysteriously in the heart of the king, moving his heart and his desires as he wishes. All right? So there's some important things here, um, especially in these verses from Daniel, from Proverbs, from uh, Ezra. No matter who we're talking about, these men, these kings in some of these passages, Pharaoh certainly, they did not acknowledge uh, 
God. They were not believers submitted to the will of God. And so as we think about that, sometimes we think uh, God can only accomplish his will in us and through us in the world if we submit to it. And there's some truth to this. We want to be part of God's will. We want to be part of his plan. But we have to understand he is going to do what he's going to do regardless of our obedience. Now, we can either be on his side or we cannot be on his side, but he's going to do what he has set forth to do. And that's proven here because these people were not looking to do God's will. They were not trying to be part of God's plan. They had not submitted to Yahweh's plan and saying, have thine own way, Lord, you know, five times at the altar. They had not done that. But God uses them, nevertheless, to accomplish his purposes. They acted as their hearts directed. Power, greed, arrogance, hate, wickedness, idolatry, rebellion, whatever it was in these people's hearts, um, they were acting according to what was there in their own sinful hearts and imaginations. Even in those instances, their hearts were being directed by God. Again, Joseph's brothers accomplishing God's will by their sinful actions, wicked motives, jealousy, hatred, envy, whatever it was, selling him into slavery. And yet Joseph is still able to look at that and say, you didn't do this, God did this. What you meant for evil sinful, wicked actions that you're responsible for, God was working in and through the very same things to accomplish his good purposes for me and for his people, to preserve life in Egypt, to preserve the people of Israel, if you think about it, to maintain life. So these people acting according to their own wills, their own consciences, their own hearts, free decisions, nevertheless, by God's prompting, mysterious moving of their hearts, accomplishing God's purposes exactly the way God had intended for them to do. Another part of this, maybe the negative side of this, is this idea of restraining. God prevents people from acting. God in his sovereignty can prompt people to act. He can also restrain people from acting. Sometimes he restrains people or us from doing things that harm them or ourselves. God prevents people from acting in ways that may harm them. He also might prevent them from acting in ways that may harm others. So as you saw in several of those passages, at times, God is prompting these wicked kings and nations to assault his people and to judge them for their sin. At other times, God is preventing that from happening. And other times, God is creating favor for the people of Israel in the sight of Cyrus and the Egyptians and others. And so, however the Lord directs and however the Lord wills in those situations, that is how those people's hearts are moved, and that is therefore how they act, whether it's God's prompting of them to do something or God's restraining power on them uh, from doing something. And then this happens in our individual lives too, doesn't it? We probably don't know how many times a day this happens as the Holy Spirit by his grace and by his power, restrains us from sinning. And we might not even be conscious of it. Sometimes we are, and we submit in that moment and yield, and we understand the Holy Spirit is restraining me from doing this or to saying that or thinking this. 
But sometimes, without knowing it, we are being restrained. And God, by his Holy Spirit, is creating patience or grace or mercy or gratitude that's preventing us from uh, sinning in a particular way. Not just sin, any action. God might be there preventing and restraining rather than prompting, but God is involved in both to accomplish his will. Let's look at a few instances of this uh, with two scriptures. Genesis chapter 20. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter 20, the story of Abraham and Abimelech. And uh, Abraham tries to give uh, Sarah away as his sister, and there's this whole debacle. Abraham again trying to take things into his own hands and help God out. Uh, But look at chapter 20, verse 6. God speaking to Abimelech here. All right, someone read Genesis 20, verse 6. Anybody? Volunteer. Judy, thank you. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. This is why I did not let you touch her. All right, so... simple little instance of this happening and we can read over this while reading the story but this is God speaking to a pagan godless king in a dream yes I know that you've not touched Sarah I know you think something's fishy going on here between Abraham and this this lady who he says is his sister but it's really his wife I know that and I have kept you from sinning against me I have taken that desire away from you I've prevented that God did in Abimelech's heart Um, Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, verses 23 through 34. Exodus 34, 23 through 24. Someone read that for us. Uh, Maria, thank you. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times. So uh, this, this covenant renewal ceremony and the consecration of the firstborn, all these things God taught about, three, three times you'll appear before the Lord. And during those times when defenses are down, when guards are down, when they're at the tabernacle and then later the temple worshiping and going through these things, God promises here in verse 24, no one shall covet your land. That God will work supernaturally and sovereignly in the hearts of these other nations around Israel so as to prevent them during those times from even coveting the land of Israel and going after it, attacking whatever, what have you. It's interesting to see that. And again, we just kind of could pass over that. But right there is God restraining the hearts even of these pagan idolatrous people, the Canaanites, around the people of Israel to prevent them not just from doing something, but from even feeling something. I mean, coveting is this act of sin. It is an act of transgression, but it's in the mind and the desires and the heart, isn't it? It's a desire, something down in our hearts and our minds that we want, jealousy. And, and God says, I'm even able to control that and to restrain that, and I'm going to do it on behalf of my people during those times. Okay? Now, it's important to know that... Um, I don't think I put this on here. Let me check my slides here. Do you have God restrains blank? Okay, I'm going to give you those because I didn't make a slide for it. God restrains actions. 
This is what we just talked about. God restrains actions. God restrains desires. So we see God restraining not just their actions, but their very desires and their heart. All for our good. And by our, I mean the people of God. Whether we're talking about Israel in the Old Covenant or the church, individual believers in the New Covenant. God is doing this for his glory and for our good. Now, the, the immediate question might come to mind, does he always do that? And the answer is no. In that moment, he promises Israel at least those three times in the year, I'm going to restrain them and to prevent them from coveting your land. But I won't always do that. And it's clear that God does not always restrain. Think about Joseph, that character we just keep going to in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, and how his brothers did this wicked thing to him, but it was God who was at work the whole time. God did not restrain his brothers from throwing him into the pit or from selling him to slavery. God did not restrain Potiphar's wife from lying about him. God did not restrain them from putting him in prison. But at the end of it, we see God at work to accomplish his purposes, even in all that stuff that he did not restrain, and all the things that he prompted against Joseph, nevertheless to accomplish good for Joseph, good for his family, good for Egypt, and good for the people of Israel. Think of Israel's enemies. We see those few times where God says, I will keep them from coveting your land. But we know that's not always the case because he also puts it into the heart of Cyrus and others to attack Israel and to take their land, doesn't he? We see both. So at times we see him restraining. Other times we see him prompting him to do the exact opposite to his people. And if all this seems uh, contradictory or bothersome to you, maybe, maybe it helps just to land here at the cross Think of the cross. Think of that passage you read from Acts chapter 4. Pontius Pilate, with no thought for God, no acknowledgement of God's will, accomplishing what he thought was his own purposes by his power, his arrogance, his pride, trying to maintain peace and crucify this man and be done with it. I wash my hands of him. Nevertheless, what does Peter say there in Acts chapter 4? God predestined these very things to take place. Or Herod, who passed Jesus off back to Pilate and said, I don't want anything to do with him either. And in this passive way, had Jesus crucified. Think of Acts chapter 2, when Peter says to the people on the day of Pentecost, you crucified him. You did it by the hands of wicked and lawless men. It was sin, the greatest sin ever perpetrated against God by humanity in the crucifixion of Jesus but in the same breath Peter says this occurred according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and again they don't take time to stop and say now let me explain how this works it's just there for us man acting in his evil sinful heart and his desires God accomplishing his good purposes for his people every single step of the way so God restrains at times, he prompts at times. He's not always prompting, he's not always restraining. But he does both to accomplish his purposes for his people. I wanted to read a quote from you from the book, if you have the book, page 56. Page 56, right there in the middle. Uh, quote from Burkauer on Genesis 50. Joseph's brothers devise and execute their plans. Aroused by jealousy, they gradually commit themselves irre irrevocably to their chosen course. 
Their evil plan achieves historical realization, but the historical events are products of the divine activity. God's good intents followed the mischievous path of the brothers, or rather, the brothers unwittingly followed the path that God has blazed. They work his service. The purpose of God lights up the horizon of evil, jealous, malicious activity. That's a good quote right there. The purpose of God lights up the horizon of evil. God at work in these people's hearts, restraining. It's important to note what this is not. This is not coercion. God had to do nothing in the hearts of these sinful men, Joseph's brothers, for them to be jealous, for them to be hateful, for them to do what they did to Joseph. They were acting according to their own sinful intentions. God had to permit, God had to allow, God had to decree those things, but they're doing it by their own sinful choice. God didn't have to step in and, and coerce them. God was working through their wills, through their sin, through their wickedness, making their own choices. Nevertheless, they were following the path, as the author said there, that God had already blazed. All to accomplish his purposes. All to accomplish his purposes. So let's talk about some problems here. Maybe problems that we, we might have, problems that we need to address when it comes to sovereignty and man's responsibility. First of all, let's just lay this as a foundational truth we need to come to terms with. God is infinite. We are finite. That's one of those words. I don't understand why they did it that way. It should be infinite and finite or infinite and finite, but whatever. It's, it's infinite and finite. God is unbound. He's eternal, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. We are none of those things. Uh, turn over to Psalm 50. Someone read for us verse 21. Psalm 50. Verse 21. Someone volunteer to read that. Psalm 50, verse 21. Deanne, thank you. Yeah, you see the middle there. We, we think God is like us. God says this as if to mock the people. You thought <laughs> that I was exactly like you, but I'm not. You are finite creatures. I am the infinite, eternal creator. So let, let's keep that in mind. It's sort of like that retort that Paul deals with in Romans 9. Uh, some of you may say, how can God blame me, blame me since I'm just doing his will? How can God hold me responsible for my sin if I'm just acting according to his will? And Paul said, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Should the pot say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Yet we try to do that because we think God is like us and that he should answer to us and fit within our opinions and our thoughts of him rather than letting him define himself for us. It's important to note in all of this that God is not the author of sin. The human heart, wicked and fallen in sin, is the source of sin. God is not the author of sin, even if he uses it to accomplish his purposes. And even if he prompts people in their sin to accomplish his purposes, 
God is not the author of the sin or the sinful thoughts or actions. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10, we don't have to read all these. Let's skip through here. Isaiah 10. Um, interesting to note that this is God speaking a judgment against Assyria. The same Assyria that he says he will raise up to punish his people. Okay, remember that from earlier? The same Assyria that God says, I will put it in their heart to do this thing. Keep that in mind. This is God's judgment on that same nation. Uh, Isaiah 10, starting in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. Okay, you, you, Assyria, godless pagan nation, are my instrument of anger. Verse 6, against a godless nation, my people. I'm sending you against my people who by now are a godless, idolatrous nation. Verse 7, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. In his heart is to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Okay, you see the difference in motives here. God says, I'm raising you up to judge my people so that they'll be holy and come back to me. Your intentions are power and greed and arrogance and might. Uh, let's keep going down to favorite daughter, Red Heart. That must be Bentley. Favorite daughter, Red I'm going to call her that from now on. Hello, favorite daughter, Red Heart. <laughs> uh, verse 13. By the strength of my hand, uh, this, this is the wicked king talking. By the strength of my hand, I've done it in my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the, I'm sorry, this is the Lord talking about what he's doing through the, the people of Assyria. By the strength of my hand, I've done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth and chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hewed? with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it as if a rod should wield him who lifts it or as a staff should lift him who is not wood you see this, this interplay between God and the people of Assyria the king of Assyria I'm going to use you to do this by my holy intentions but your intentions are wicked and therefore I'm going to judge you and in the end, it is I who raise up kings and bring down kings. It's I who raise up nations and bring down nations. You, Assyria, or Israel, or anyone else, are just a tool in my hand that I use. It is not you who's using God as the tool. It's God who's using us, or these nations, or this wicked king, or whoever he chooses to use as his tool. So we see here that people are accountable to God. God is accomplishing his holy purposes, but that does not excuse the sinful actions of the people or of these kings or these pagan empires that come against his people, and God will judge them for it. And again, Isaiah doesn't take time to stop and explain how this works. How is it, Isaiah, that God's sovereign purpose is to raise up Assyria to punish his people, but then he's going to turn around and punish Assyria for doing that very thing? Isaiah doesn't take time to explain that to us, nor does he need to. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. They're not our thoughts. He is not us, and he does not owe us an explanation. Somewhere in the mystery of God's sovereignty and power and providence is the answer. And I don't know that we'll ever discover it for all eternity. But 
the scriptures present both things to us at the same time. God acting, man acting. God's sovereignty overruling man's actions, but man acting by his own choices and will. Sinful will. Lastly, another problem is, uh, with this is that we somehow see people um, acting against their will or not in accordance with their will. But in all these instances, these people are doing nothing but acting according to their will. They're acting according to their own sinful inclinations, their own fallen minds, their sinful desires, whatever they are, whether it's the Pharisees or Joseph's brothers or Assyria or your boss or your friends or your family or you in any given situation, we are the ones who are acting according to our will, sinful and fallen and broken wills, but it's our will. We are not mere puppets. No matter which side you fall on this debate of sovereignty, election, predestination, whatever it may be, no view in Christian history is, is textbook fatalism. And what I mean by that is, you know, what will be will be. Que sera, sera. I don't need to do anything. You don't need to do anything. It's going to happen the way it happens, so who cares? It all means nothing. That's old, old school stoicism, fatalism, whatever. That's not the way the Bible presents God's sovereignty to us. It presents men acting according to their choices, sinful, wicked, free, voluntary choices, God all the while acting at the same time to accomplish his purposes by his own sovereignty and providence, moving mysteriously in the hearts of men, prompting, restraining, hardening, softening, raising up, bringing down to accomplish his will. So the response to this, uh, number one, here's just a quote from the book. We do not always know how God will answer our prayers or if he will move in the heart of another individual. But it is enough to know that our destiny is in his hands, not those of other people. When it comes to the, the sovereignty of God, it is a hotly debated topic in Christianity. Sovereignty, free will, predestination, election, whatever those issues are, it all, it all comes from this same place. And people see these things and they see these seemingly tense situations between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And they say, I don't see how that works. And so this is the way I think it is. And sometimes we venture outside of scripture. Here's the thing about God's sovereignty. Either God is completely in control and sovereign or he's not. And if he's not in complete control and has complete sovereignty in all things, even our individual choices and actions, if he does not have control in those things, and if he's not sovereign in those things, he can't be trusted with anything. And worse, we have a God that is not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is presented, as we've seen him in Scripture tonight, sovereign, in control, prompting, restraining, raising up, and bringing down. And here's why that's comforting. Here's why that should comfort us. Rather than make us angry or want to debate or argue about free will or God's sovereignty, it's this right here, that ultimately we can trust that our destinies are in his hands and that no one else, as powerful as they may seem, nobody is able to thwart his purposes for us. And that even the worst actions of someone else to us 
the worst actions. Think of the crucifixion. The worst actions against us are only serving to accomplish God's will for us. To me, that puts the whole debate to rest. I don't need to argue anymore, to debate anymore after that, because there's comfort and peace and solace in that, knowing that whatever happens to me, or whatever is raised up against me, or whoever is raised up against me, it's all according to God's plan and God's purpose for his glory and for my ultimate good. And nothing can thwart that or stop it or change it. God is sovereign. I'm kind of wrap this up. God is sovereign over people. He can move in their hearts. He can also restrain their actions. And if the lesson of this book and this series together is to learn to trust God, we must learn, there you have this blank, I think, we must learn to live by his agenda if we are to trust him. We must learn to live by his agenda if we're going to trust him. Let me go through these um, warnings very quickly, three warnings tonight. Number one, do not blame God for shortcomings. In other words, if you get fired from your job because you're just a layabout, lazy, no good, whatever, don't, don't turn around and say, well, you know, God is sovereign. He's accomplishing his purpose. Now, he is, and he's in charge of what happened to you, but you're still responsible for your laziness, okay? <laughs> it, that's still sinful, and, and the Bible is clear about that. Um, you know, if you find yourself caught up in a sin, it, it just... I'm not going to go into hypotheticals. Let's think of something terrible, and you get caught up in that, and you say, well, you know, God is sovereign. And you find yourself in jail somewhere for doing something stupid. Oh, yeah, God is in control. I didn't, that, that's not what this is. Again, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And we'll still be held accountable for our sinful choices and actions when they don't match up to God's motives, but God is still at work in those things. So there's comfort in that, but don't let that comfort turn into, let's say number two here, don't let it turn into passivity. Don't be passive. Whatever will be, will be. Who cares? I'm not in control. You're not in control, so why bother with anything? Thirdly, I think this comes with that, do not excuse sin. Well, I'm only doing what God wanted me to do after all. He's sovereign, isn't he? I'm only desiring what he wants me to desire and doing what he wants me to do in this whatever sin it is or temptation it is. No, sin is still sin. And in all those instances we saw, the Bible presents both to us. These people are sinful. They're wicked. They'll be judged. But don't worry. God is still working in those sinful actions to accomplish his will and his purposes. Uh, Lastly tonight, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Two simple points here. As we close this, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. You probably heard me quote this many times. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Someone read that when you get there for us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. All right, so you say, I can't figure this out. This doesn't make sense to me, Pastor Matt. I don't understand the sovereignty and the free will and all that stuff. This doesn't go, this doesn't mesh with me. I I can't figure this out. It's okay. Isn't that good? 
It's okay. If someone comes and asks, Pastor Matt, how does this happen? Sometimes you just say, I don't know. And the Bible gives you freedom to do that, even right here. These secret things, trust God with the secret things. The things that are beyond our finding out and beyond our explanation. We don't have to. The, the scripture never stops in any of these instances to say, now let me explain how this works for you. I know this is hard to understand. Peter doesn't do it. Isaiah doesn't do it. Moses doesn't do it. Paul doesn't do it. And they don't see the need to. Because in the end, they're saying, let God be God and every man found to be a liar. It doesn't make any difference what we think or how we feel about this. God is in control. God is sovereign. And if we can't figure it out, we simply need to say, okay, this is part of God's secret things that are just too high for me to understand. And Moses says it's okay. The secret things belong to the Lord. But that's not the end of the verse, is it? There are also revealed things. And Moses says whatever is revealed, now that's for you and your children and for your children's children. Teach those things. Talk about those things. So what have we seen revealed here tonight? God is sovereign over all things, even my individual thoughts and actions and desires. I'm also responsible for my individual thoughts and actions and desires. And if we say, I can't figure that out, secret things. I, that can be your cop-out for everything as far as I care. It's a biblical one, isn't it? So I just say secret things. Secret things, right? But what are the revealed things? God is sovereign. God is in control. I'm responsible for my actions, and I'm responsible to obey him. Uh, those two things are not contradictory. Spurgeon always said they're like uh, parallel lines. The illustration breaks down. Bless his heart. But he was, he was, he was getting somewhere good. The, the parallel lines never seem to intersect, Spurgeon said. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But Spurgeon said they do intersect somewhere in eternity. They meet. If we can't figure it out right now, we can't make them mesh together right now, it's okay. Secret things belong to the Lord. But what's revealed are those things, those realities. He's in control. We're responsible for our actions. And this goes into everything from uh, individual, everyday, big things, small things, salvation. Everything is wrapped up in these two truths. God is in control. God is sovereign. And we are responsible. So tonight, God is sovereign over people, restraining, prompting, Raising up, bringing down, people are still responsible for their own free, sinful choices. Now, as we go on to kind of unpack these things further, we're going to look at God's role in history, God's role in the nations, God's role in salvation, God's role in nature, and all these things in which God is, is sovereign over. So what I encourage you to do, if you don't have the book, I don't have any more, but if you want to get one, go on Amazon and find it, or tell us and we can order one for you. Uh, I heard it was free on Audible. If you have an Amazon Prime membership, right, so you can listen to it. Uh, the discussion questions are in the back if you want to look at those ahead of time before next week. Next week, I think, I want to tell you what chapter, I think it's just chapter 5. Yes, for next week, just chapter 5, God's rule over the nations. Let me pray so you can get the choir and I don't get in trouble. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your goodness and mercy and sovereignty in our lives. I ask that you would help us to come to terms with your sovereign goodness and your providence, your leadership in our lives. Help us to submit to that. Help us to submit all things to that in our family, our friends, our situations, our jobs. Uh, all things are from you and through you and to you. 
and to you belong all glory and honor forever and ever. God, help us to give that to you. Help us to submit in all things to you and help us to trust you and to realize and to know that you're good and you're holy and you're accomplishing all things for our good, to be like Christ and for your glory. God, help us to see that even in those times when it doesn't make sense to us and help us to trust that even when we can't see it with our eyes. We ask all these things and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.